disclaimers. One, the content shared in this podcast is strictly for informational purposes and should not be construed as financial or legal advice. Two, the opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely their own and do not represent the views of their employers or affiliated organizations. Three, none of the projects or companies discussed should be considered as endorsements or recommendations. Four, while efforts are made to ensure accuracy, the information provided may not always be up to date or entirely reliable. It is advisable to conduct independent research and seek professional guidance before making any financial or legal decisions. Five, the hosts and guests of this podcast shall not be held liable for any consequences or actions resulting from the use of the information provided. Six, all content, including text, graphics, and audio, is protected by copyright laws. Unauthorized reproduction or distribution is strictly prohibited. Seven, any discussions on sensitive topics aim to foster inclusivity and respectful dialogue, but differing opinions should be expected and not attributed to the podcast creators or sponsors. Eight, by listening to this podcast, you acknowledge and agree to these disclaimers, and you are responsible for your own interpretation and application of the information presented. Hey everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Intersection 4 podcast. I'm very excited. Uh, the topics today are something that I've been uh, really thinking quite deeply about, and they're not just topics that affect you know, a few people. They're the topics that affect entire countries, uh, politics around the world, and even something to the depth of you know, what it means to be human in, in today's world. And so very excited to have Brendan um, with me to discuss these things. As, uh, as a reminder, Brendan is the founder of Athena Intelligence, and he's the resident you know, founder, AI machine learning expert. Um, I'm the founder of Plutus 21 Capital. Uh, we are a frontier markets and frontier technology investor. So let's jump right in. Uh, the first topic for the day is how um, identity and security has changed in a world uh, where sophisticated and very powerful AI uh, is available. And I want to give you some background on how you know, I even started thinking about this topic and, and why it might be relevant to everyday people in their everyday lives. Um, you know, I was on, on the same day, it was a coincidence, I was spending time playing around with some AI tools that could take my voice and you know change it and add things to it and take a few seconds of my voice and replicate it quite effectively. Um, and it was a coincidence that on that same day, uh, I was also on a call with a bank confirming wiring instructions. Um, and that really got me thinking about um, how authentication, which usually takes the form of you know, checking identity by having a video call with somebody or checking identity by having a phone call with somebody, like how all of that changes uh, in a world where, uh, you know, reports are that it, the AI only needs about a three to five second clip of your voice to be able to replicate it to a pretty uh, impressive um, quality. And uh, if you think about you know, obviously people like us that are on podcasts, but even just regular people, uh, it, it, it'll be quite easy to find three to five seconds of their audio or their video somewhere online. And the more that all of us become, um, put our information, put our, put our voices, put our videos online, the more uh, this becomes a problem. So as the, you know, resident AI founder, um, on the podcast, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts, Brendan, on what you think about the topic. Am I um, overly concerned about this? Is the concern uh, well-placed? And where do you think the capabilities are today uh, to, for this to really be a problem? 
Yeah, it's, it's funny, as you mentioned, you've just kind of gone through this process of wiring money. Um, we're fundraising right now at Athena, <laughs> and we've had to go through this um, over the last few days as people will start wiring us money. And some individuals will just immediately wire it. Others, we have to do a double verification phone call. Um, we actually mm -hmm. just did this exact same scenario. So I, I forgot <laughs> about that until you said it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the uh, it's well-placed, but I think it's a bit early. I think mm -hmm. right now, um, I was surprised to see recently the FCC uh, had a massive crackdown on mm -hmm. uh, some SMS provider that was sending spam. Uh, and a number of different regulations require Verizon, AT&T, and other uh, you know, mobile providers to effectively let the traffic go through, regardless if they know it's spam or not, um, because that's effectively going to be um, at risk for um, uh, censorship. So for the first time in a long time, they're actually allowing them to block um, this particular provider, um, which is a massive crackdown. Um, that will stop like tens of millions of people from huh. actually seeing a lot of these uh, these attacks, attack vectors over, over text. Um, the AI one I think is more interesting and, and very relevant, um, but I'd be very surprised if anyone actually had that happen within our network um, anytime soon. In the long term, obviously this is gonna be a big topic, but probably a drop of the, in the ocean. <laughs> so actually like um, I was reading up on, you know, the initial uh, research or like surveys on this. Um, and there was a survey of about 7,000 people in nine or 10 countries. Uh, and they actually found that about 10% of those people, so about 900 people had actually already received an AI uh, based, uh, you know, fraud scheme like this uh, through their phones and what uh, through the voicemails of their phones. And what they also found was from this 10%, uh, so about, you know, uh, not 900 people, uh, 700 people, from that, from those 700 people, almost 80% of them actually uh, wired the money and sent the money and lost money in this, in this transaction. So it's not a, I think the percentage of people that uh, fell for it uh, might not be as high, but the percentage of people within that group that actually lost money, I think it's probably higher than a usual scam. Uh, I think it's probably, you know, only maybe 20, 30% of people who get a scam call actually fall for it. But when it's somebody that uh, is pretending to be uh, someone that they know uh, and trust, I think the percentage chance that the scam is actually successful, I think goes way up. Um, so, uh, and the losses were not small. Uh, the losses were between five hundred and fifteen thousand um, dollars. So, uh, I I was also of the opinion that oh, this is this is obviously a problem, but nothing that is going to be a problem anytime soon. Um, but don't you think but, the statistics on that are like circular? If you don't know it's an okay. AI, how can you report that you've been like tricked by an AI or that you've gotten an AI call in the last thirty days? Yeah. So I guess like maybe the way that they figured it out after the fact is let's say it's Brendan's voice that was replicated and I fell for it and wired money. Uh, and then when I actually talked to the real Brendan, Brendan was like, well, you know, I never sent you that message. Um, and I was, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think probably more than I need to. Uh, yeah. But I was even thinking about it in the context of, of voice notes. So it's quite common uh, for me to communicate with people over WhatsApp. 
Um, and when I'm driving or if I'm busy and I don't want to write a text, um, I send a lot of voice notes. And I never used to think twice before sending a voice note to a stranger. Like never, never even dawned on me that, you know, that would be something that I should be concerned about. But after having thought about all of this, now I'm thinking, you know, why am I sending voice notes to a, a complete stranger? Because that same person with just about three to five seconds of my voice could, could be um, really doing these very targeted phishing attacks um and uh, and 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 i think that if somebody targeted my family or or my company and my teammates uh with something that targeted i think actually would be quite successful um because the way that they would double check all this stuff is like oh let, well if hamis sends a voice note well that has to be real um yeah. so yeah. i think it's probably like closer than people think I, I totally, I totally agree. I just think the the numbers don't work out right now. Like, I'll give you an example. I have um, one of our employees, um, Ethan. He messaged me yesterday, and let's see if I can pull it up and say exactly what it said. But he sent it to me as a joke because he knew it was phishing. It said, um, "I need you to get some gift cards from any store around the block." Oh no! First message was, "Hi, Brendan, uh, or hi, Ethan. Are you free at the moment? I need you to handle something for me, Brendan Giles." And it's a random number. And then he, I told him, you should respond. I want to see what these people say. And then the follow-up question was, I need you to get some gift cards from the store around. I'm in the middle of something and need the codes. Can you handle this for me? The cost to send that text, you don't have to have any interesting tech. It's not hard to make. You don't need a voicemail. And it's probably an automated system is like cents. And the, the, the through rate on that is probably a few hundred dollars. So when I look at the 515,000, the amount of like engineering to actually stand at that system, the 515,000 doesn't seem like they're able to meet the the same outcomes that you get from this text message service. Cause it's a pretty decent service. I could see someone fall for it. Um, if, if, if they're like a targeted campaign, I could see this be like more, uh, more successful, but I, I'm still, uh, I'm still unsure if I trust these, <laughs> these, the latest numbers, but the latest numbers no, that makes sense. You're right. Because if it's, like you would have to go whale fishing for this to make sense, right? Yeah. Um, but with every you know CEO in the world, every CFO in the world, I think the chances that you can find enough video content or voice content for a, a CEO of really any company, like the chances are like probably close to a hundred percent. Like you can you can find something about them on the internet where um, you could ex- extract some. Um, some valuable information. And then when you go whale fishing and the target is a couple hundred thousand dollars or a couple million dollars even, um, I think then the numbers can really start to make sense. But but I agree with you. I think that these mass market kind of scams, um, this type of technique like really doesn't add up or, or make sense. Um, and what's, what's crazy like in line is I think last week, opening I just announced, or they didn't announce, excuse me, it was found out that they're cutting off their AI watermark team. So that was like ideally supposed to be stood up in order to identify, you know, what photos, videos, audio, text generation is uh, based on AI. And they actually uh, are cutting that team. They quietly cut the team. So Why? when you think long-term- um, Why do you the, think? The, the allegations are they weren't able to successfully mm-hmm. do that. Um, sure. There's maybe a dead end and they don't want to come up with bad results, they'd rather just quietly kill it. Obviously, these are all allegations. 
Um, so I think that's actually an interesting topic because uh, originally people were hoping that we'd have AI watermarking. So that way, like my phone could pick up, hey, this isn't actually mm. a person. This is like using some statistical um, uh, relevance that attributes it to an AI. Um, maybe that won't happen anymore. So maybe it's very interesting. So, so what would be defenses, right? Like from a technology perspective, because it sounds like an arms race. And we've talked about this arms race before, right? Where if you know the the bad actors start using the technology, then the good actors have to continuously, um, you know, keep up with that. Otherwise, um, you know, they, they fall behind, and, and the it becomes a real threat. And I think it actually falls quite nicely into our next topic, which is this is an arms race, and and not the arms race in the typical sense of you know, uh, typical weapons, but arms race in terms of technology. So from a technology perspective, what do you think are possible solutions? You know, you talked a little bit about watermarking, uh, but are there any defenses uh, against this that you can you can think of? I don't, I don't know about hard, hard and fast defenses. <clears throat> what interests me though is where we are gonna um, provide the fault it will be on the the railroads and what i mean by that is uh you know historically section uh, 208 for social media doesn't allow um social media companies to um, see fines from bullying will that happen for the uh phone carriers you know will, will they hold mm -hmm. liability for some of these things will the twilios and send grids that are actually like allowing people to have this phone number or make the phone call Will there be better identity checks at that mark, or is it on the end consumer to actually create these defenses? I, I, I assume that there's going to be more human proof points happening at like the stand-up points. Wherever you're spending a dollar, you have to prove that it's a human dollar, not a a bot. And we're seeing that in, in Twitter has to do that as well. And a number of systems are now saying, how do we uh, how do we prove you're you're a real person? So when you act maliciously, we can attribute it to you. I don't yeah, know, do you, that's do you right. Feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, uh, another uh, interesting coincidence was while I was going through this, you know, revelation that my voice could be used in the wrong way. That same week, uh, Worldcoin was also launching their pro project, right? And uh, you know, for people who don't know, Worldcoin might sound like another you know crypto company that you shouldn't really care about. Uh, but it's actually a, a company that is backed and, and uh, has a lot of involvement from the CEO of OpenAI. Um, and his major concern uh, from his own work at OpenAI is that it will become increasingly difficult to tell a person uh, apart from uh, a computer. And so the whole premise around WorldCoin is that uh, they have these you know, orbs or globes, you can call them all around the world, that can actually scan the iris of each individual, uh, confirm that it's a human iris, uh, attach a real identity to that iris on the blockchain, and to incentivize people to put themselves on this blockchain, um, they're going to give you the world coin, right? So the least interesting part of this whole thing is the world coin, right? Like that's like, uh, I, I can understand why that's interesting, but you know that's not the core of the, the, the thought process here. But it would be very interesting if there was a immutable database of people where you could actually attach 
something that is so unique to each person as their iris uh, back to a immutable identity online. Um, <clears throat> and if you can start doing that, then the source of truth or the source of information for all uh, interactions related to identity could become that blockchain. Um, and, and you could really then have companies like Twitter, companies like the financial institutions where this fraud can happen, actually connect the dots uh, and provide a pretty, um, I think, sophisticated solution to this problem where um, if your identity was supposedly used somewhere, uh, you would have to approve it cryptographically um, through the blockchain. Um, and I think if you can start to kind of merge some of these technologies together, you can actually come up with quite a, a strong defense uh, because you take the immutability, uh, the global nature of a blockchain um, to be able to store this information about identity. And then you take the power of you know, IoT devices. That's what I would call that orb is kind of like an IoT device. Um, and then you put those together to create a um, database of real humans uh, that actually is very difficult to, to, um, to mess with, to, uh, to corrupt. Um, yeah. So that, that's an interesting thought experiment, uh, but also uh, that it's being done in real life. Um, yeah, it's, it's not actually, a, you know, live today. Yeah, it's it's not uh, it's not surprising that the person who is running into this <laughs> issue of you know, computers and bots um, taking AI tools and using them in the wild also is supporting something that prevents that. So maybe he killed the uh, the, the the privacy project and the AI watermarking project because this is going to solve it. Who knows? So um, yeah, Sam Altman. Quite interesting and. Uh, uh, he really seems to be, you know, becoming this centerpiece to this, uh, you know, whole technology movement, both from the perspective of the advancement of the technology, but also some of the quite robust solutions for the protection uh, from this yeah. technology. And so, um, you know, if, if I described this, uh, you know, WorldCoin project to anybody who's not aware of it, it might sound like science fiction, right, where you have this orb, in Africa and you go to a place and you scan your iris, like it sounds like very science fiction-y, but it's happening and it's real. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah. and what I like about the structure though, is that <clears throat> given that it's built on a blockchain, uh, it can exist outside of a, a singular corporation, right? So even if WorldCoin, the foundation or the corporation decided to stop supporting uh, the network, um, everything that's on that blockchain, as long as there is somebody running a node somewhere of that blockchain, that information can live forever. And um, I'm sure there'd be ways for different companies and different stakeholders to interact with that blockchain information. And so even though, you know, we're in a period where, you know, blockchains, are, um, there's a lot of question about um, the relevance of blockchain, especially as you know, the focus has shifted to AI and, you know, superconductors uh, today. It's actually because of that shift in focus that blockchains have become relevant again, right? Because they've, they've become relevant as a solution to some of the problems that, that AI comes up with. And um, yeah, so... Has, has the has the world coin 
company foundation integrated at all with like the current you know, web three community or are they like living on their island or like what's the talk amongst the groups yeah they're actually quite, uh, they're backed by uh, some of the biggest they, they they've been they've been under uh, they've been developing this for quite a few years this is this is not a new uh, concept um, it only launched a couple of weeks ago uh, but you know even back in 2019 or 2020 if i remember correctly uh, we came across this uh, as something you know the the entire community was thinking about but you know back then it it really sounded like uh, science fiction and it sounded like, you know, a, a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. Because in 2019 and 2020, OpenAI and, and a lot of the attention that has been given to generative AI was was nearly not uh, as much as it is today. But I think their timing, the timing of the launch is like quite perfect right now because now you can actually see where it would be applied. But when I first heard about it, it sounded like something that was interesting, but not really necessary uh, today. But yeah. now, at the same time, when Elon Musk is trying to get rid of bots from Twitter, um, you know, we're dealing with this AI fraud. Like at the same time, like this technology is coming out, right? And so, I think because of that, it's like, in my opinion, now to people like far more relevant, and even to people outside of the blockchain ecosystem who have always had you know uh, interest in like crazy ideas and like interesting ways to solve problems uh, but i think this is actually going beyond the blockchain core ecosystem mm -hmm. and catching the imagination of people uh, who have never really interacted with that ecosystem uh, but now could be doing it as a way to protect their identity to prove their humanness um right and yeah. and uh do things like that so actually um one of the questions i have for you is that humanness question because that is uh something from what i've you know researched is quite a difficult thing to prove um especially when these ais become more and more advanced so do you think solutions like this can like help with um that where when you're speaking to somebody uh, would a solution like this be able to prove that, you know, in your application, like your text application, like it'll be able to, they'll be able to prove that it's an actual human speaking to you uh, through a system like this. Uh, how yeah. do you think that relates uh, to, to WorldCoin or the concept of WorldCoin? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because in any tech stack you roll, the, the two things you're never supposed to do is roll your own authentication and authentication, authenticate and authorize, excuse me. Okay. Um, okay. So authenticate is who are you? And mm -hmm. then authorize is what you're allowed to have access mm -hmm. to. So, mm -hmm. so I think Worldcoin definitely solves both. Authenticate you with the IRS, authorize you through this blockchain. So the ledger of mm -hmm. like what you're accessible to, you know, what's your funds in your account, whatever they actually end up putting on the on the on the ledger um i think both have like their their ups and downs i'm not super well connected to know what that looks like uh mm -hmm. i do think it's a very hard problem and there's going to be ways around it near term um but i, I wouldn't be able to project any further out than that <laughs> yeah. yeah interesting yeah and uh, i know that you've always been um not always but generally you've been skeptical of the use cases of blockchain 
um, right? Generally speaking, uh, it hasn't been very clear commercial, to you to this point. Okay. Generally, it has not been clear to you the, the commercial use cases of blockchain, right? You, you're still looking for that, that killer application. Do you think which is, this changes? Which is actually why I'm interested in how you said they were funded. Worldcoin had like uh-huh. backers. What is the, the business model that they are intending? Or is there any indication of like the payback for that? Yeah, from my understanding, it's actually quite similar to the other blockchain networks where the sort of you know financial reward comes from network effects. So there's a certain number of world coins out there, but if every person in the world to interact with that network needs a world coin, and you are one of the people that owns a world coin, if a billion people come onto the WorldCoin network and in order to extract their uh, data to show Twitter or Twitter to extract the data to prove that Brendan is real, they have to spend some WorldCoin. Um, that essentially creates, makes WorldCoin a commodity, right? That has a fixed supply, uh, but over time has more and more demand, right? So a lot of these uh, blockchain networks are, are essentially structured as commodities. So it's as if, um, you know, there, there would be, let's say you're bullish on cars as a future technology. Um, there would be a few ways to uh, financially benefit from that bullishness. Uh, you could invest in a car manufacturing company uh, because they would sell more cars. You could invest in a company that um, extends, um, a, a company that uh, extracts the fuel that goes into cars out of the ground and you know puts it into the cars. Uh, that as car user uh, usage goes up, you know the fuel uh, becomes more in demand, and you could monetize that. What you could also do is, if there was a limited amount of fuel in the world, and every car that was sold needed to use that fuel, you could also buy up a lot of that fuel, right, and just hoard yeah. it and like sit on it, right. And as cars became more popular, every car owner needed that fuel to run yeah. their cars. So it's kind of like that, where if WorldCoin, uh, the network, becomes a very important part of financial and social infrastructure, every person in the world that wants to interact with that, take a service from that network, has to pay using this fuel, which in this case, the fuel is WorldCoin. So if you're hoarding a lot of that fuel, then your commodity, which is the fuel, could be worth uh, something more in the future. So that's sort of how a lot of these you know, networks and uh, blockchain networks are, are built. So I would imagine that it's similar here where they invested capital in return for some world coin. Um, and now that the network is live, depending on how much usage it gets, the value of that world coin uh, you know, from from their perspective, might increase. Do Do you have any? And you can decline to comment. Any <laughs> thoughts on like the larger funds participating in those like ICOs and then getting out? Because mm-hmm. um, I've seen more news recently about what ended up happening or allegations of what's happening in those markets as the there's downturns. They maybe leave the bag with someone else. Yeah, and and you know that just uh, it's not really quite different than what would happen in a traditional like equity investment, right? So if you were a fund investing traditional equity 
in a tough period if the company's public, like you could dump it on the market and there would be willing buyers on the other side that are buying it at the market price. And uh, you could have, um, and, and you could have that situation where somebody is left holding the bag, um, right? So it's really not quite different than that, uh, but similar to those equity types of investments, uh, there's also obviously protections in place. So the same way that, you know, if you were a seed stage investor in the equity of a business and it goes public, there's a certain cool off period and there's a certain restricted period where you cannot dump um, your stock. Uh, it's similar in these projects as well, where you get locked tokens um, for it and it has a vesting schedule. Um, so most of the you know good companies that care about the long-term success of their business and their network, uh, they do put some of those protections in place so that they only bring on investors who really are you know, very long-term focused. Um, but obviously after that period has expired, um, the investors are free to trade and, and sell their stakes. So really not quite different um, than equity offerings. And that's why you know it's, the, the statistics are quite clear on this. Uh, investing in the IPOs of tech companies is a, quite a bad strategy. Um, and, and you can almost like see the vesting cliff like six months yeah. after, you know, IPO and you can see what price action does right after that. The right. And so, period. yeah, the lockout period and a lot of people have similar lockout periods. So as soon as, you know, they, uh, go over that cliff, uh, a lot of price action happens. Uh, but from the perspective of an investor, that's that's part of your job. It's part of your job to take some chips off the table. It's part of your job to manage the risk um, for for your investors. And this is actually one of the reasons that a lot of the larger investment firms um, on the even traditional technology companies are converting into registered investment advisors. Um, and they're doing that so that they can hold on to these liquid assets. Uh, because this is gonna get a little technical, but there is a venture capital exemption uh, and you do not have to register with the SEC as an investment advisor if your entire business is focused on investing in the private equity of venture companies uh, or private equity in general. Um, the exemption basically says that if you know up to 20% of your assets can be liquid, they can be you know stocks that trade on a stock exchange. But if you go above that 20%, you fall outside of that exemption. So now you have to register as a registered investment advisor. So a lot of these uh, venture capital funds that held you know, big stakes in Airbnb and Uber when they went public, even if they didn't want to sell the positions, they had to sell the positions if they made more than 20% of their capital. And so uh, in some cases, they did not want to, they, they did not want to be forced to sell the positions so they're actually voluntarily converting themselves into registered investment advisors, which is what we have to be from day one because we deal with liquid assets. Um, they're going outside of the exemption, registering themselves so that if they choose to hold on to their liquid positions, they can. Um, so that's actually, uh, sometimes it's not by choice that they have to you know, sell their positions. Does that mean when a fund raises like when they raise a fund, they can't put that in equities markets while they're finding their deals. 
they cannot not more than 20 percent wow because they would that, fall that outside be, of the that must be so hard because you, you yeah. raise you know the, your 500 billion dollar 500 million dollar billion dollar funds and you're yeah. like we got to deploy because we're, we're yeah. sitting on what is it money market accounts maybe but uh, so what what happens in most of these venture and private equity vehicles is that they are drawdown vehicles so you don't actually call the capital until you find the investment got it uh, otherwise you're right and and this is actually one of the disadvantages of being in a hedge fund vehicle as a hedge fund manager because the hedge fund vehicles call all the capital up front so now there's a cash drag to your performance if you don't deploy the capital Right, because if your money is sitting in cash, it's not returning anything. And the investors start counting their return on the first day of their investment, right? Yep. But in the venture capital and private equity vehicles, in the drawdown vehicles, they start counting their returns not on the day they commit to the vehicle, but the day they wire the money. And so the way that most VC and private equity funds are structured is they'll have a commitment. So they'll take commitments from investors and then they'll have a drawdown period. So they'll say, okay, we have a 10 year fund and we're gonna draw it all down a maximum of in three years. And so during those three years, let's say they find a one good investment, it needs 5% of the capital, they'll call only 5% of the capital plus expenses and then deploy that. So now the investors you know, return clock only starts on 5% of the capital. So when you see the IRR number, like the internal rate of return right. number for a fund, it's not from the date that they um, committed, right. it's on the date that they put money in. And that's when the date starts and that's when the calculation starts. But because of this drawdown vehicle, um, there's some you know, investment managers that play kind of loose with the numbers. So what they will do is in order to juice up their returns, when they make an investment, they don't actually call capital. They just borrow money from a line of credit to make the investment. And then they buy themselves another you know, two or three months and then they call the capital. Um, and so that way the IRR is like on a shorter period of time. Um, so, you know, if you give people uh, flexibility, you know, they, they take full advantage of it. And I'm, by the way, I'm not talking about some small and like I'm talking about large investment yeah, managers. Yeah. Uh, and there is this whole asset class, which is called, uh, which is built around this, where there's, uh, where there's people who lend money to funds who have committed lines of uh, investment. Okay. So let's say you have a hundred million dollar commitment from a pension fund right the lender is quite sure that they're going to you know pay so they say hey when you get a deal i'll front you the cash and then when you call the capital from this pension fund you can pay me back plus some interest so it's actually an entire asset class uh, where a lot of people deploy capital because they consider it quite a low risk investment it's called uh, a capital call line of credit and uh, People juice their returns using it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It, there, there is like a similar one. I can't remember the name within startups. If you have like a large enterprise customer, which is like for mm -hmm. sure going to pay, yeah. you factoring. can take out. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. Factoring and, and, and they'll call it, factoring has a bad connotation, so they'll call it something else. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge, right? When you're dealing with enterprises, um, there's a real working capital constraint. 
Um, and, and the bigger the enterprise, usually the better the terms that they get. And yeah. there will be situations where you're not getting paid for 90 days, but your payroll is uh, every 30 days, right? Yeah. Um, and your AWS bill also comes every 30 days, right? So yeah. uh, it, it, there's there's actually a, a good, uh, you know, real market for these um, things for, for small businesses. We're actually, uh, you know, working with a, a company that's trying to solve this problem, um, not just for tech companies but uh, that have recurring revenue, but also for more traditional businesses um, that might be selling to a company like Walmart, uh, where they get paid, you know, 90 days out, but obviously their expenses are today. So this is an entire asset class, right, with that working capital. But if the fund managers use that capital call line of credit, you know, they can increase the fees that they earn, they can make their funds look better. Uh, they, they can do, they can also get better deals with the companies because they're able to very quickly uh, deploy the capital instead of waiting right. for the capital call to be finished. So there's quite a few reasons that, that this uh, service exists. It feels like almost in that scenario, when you have a capital call structure with your investors, wouldn't they then have to have it in a liquid account? And then they're holding the bag in some fashion yeah. because they don't have the ability to make broadband yeah. investments during that period. Yeah, and they have to manage the liquidity and, and it becomes quite challenging. So you could be a pension fund with a billion dollars in commitments and they can all be called over the next two years. So you need mm -hmm. to be holding a billion dollars in fairly liquid things. And you hope that you're not putting in an asset that like goes down in value. Right, yeah, yeah. because you can't pay them in U.S. Treasuries. You got to pay them in cash. So there's entire like teams within large institutions that project out their capital commitments, and then are managing the capital commitments in a way that you know they they can't be in a cash crunch uh, when a lot of uh, investors, a lot of investment firms start calling the capital. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, it's a challenging thing, but. But I'll tell you a few good things about this structure. Uh, we've gone deep enough into this topic that I can you know, now go really deep. But some of the good things about this structure is when you don't have that cash drag on, on the investment, it helps you be more patient with the capital, right? Because yeah. you can, uh, you're not worried about that IRR uh, you know, calculation. And so you're really able to go in and really like think uh, more deeply about each investment, do more due diligence on each investment. But when you have a hundred million dollars sitting in a bank account, you know, of course, there's a, you know, there's a uh, urgency to the deployment. And another good thing about it is, is that if you're in a tough environment, like you are right now, you don't have to deploy any capital. Like you can just completely sit on the sidelines for six months, 12 months. And that's why a lot of the startups are finding it difficult to raise capital is because it's not like there's money sitting in the VC's pocket burning a hole in there, right? It's not in their pocket at all right now. So, so they're able to take a breather for six months, you know, kind of take, take it nice and slow and then- Some summer vacation. Yeah, take, take, take the summer off like they all do. So uh, there's some good things about it. Obviously there's some, uh, there's some good things about it from the fund manager's perspective. There's some good things about it from the investor's perspective but there's quite a few things that if misused can really hurt the investors 
Um, it's very rare for you know these structures to hurt the investment managers, uh, but there are some investment managers that will misuse these things, and to the detriment of you know their their partners. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. a big fan of like know 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 your incentives. You'll know the person, and this That's is right. like a great example of you know, absolutely a good way and a bad way to to interpret it. As long as you understand yeah. the incentives, exactly. it's going to net net exactly. help you out. Oh, perfect. Well, uh, I'd love to jump to the next topic, uh, Brendan. Yeah. If you could give us some introduction uh, on what you're thinking about defense technology and how it relates to the world of venture capital, government, and everything in between. Yeah, yeah. So just a bit of background on myself. I um, spent a number of years selling to the defense sector, um, both foreign and domestic. Um, held uh, top secret clearance uh, for a period of time uh, while living in Washington, D.C., and saw the, uh, the entire uh, stretch of what it's like selling um, technology, particularly new age technology, into a, a behemoth of a customer um, <laughs> the size of uh, literal countries in many ways, uh, looking at the defense spending that the government does. Um, what the topic for today, I think, is going to be touching on more specifically, though, is the hype and or relevance that we now have within the defense sector. One, because of an upcoming election, um, mm -hmm. it's always a big topic of uh, debate on how much we're spending. And then two, there's a number of companies uh, as well as investment firms, particularly VCs that are making uh, mandates or more public claims to uh, pursuing this as an actual industry, which is um, pretty surprising given the last few years we've uh, leaned away from this given the typical maybe San Francisco stereotype of uh, we don't work with uh, defense or military applications. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. your first question for you, Hamiz, is would you, as an investor, invest in the space? Uh, why or why not? Um, yeah, an interesting question that, you know, I think about, I actually was thinking about obviously in the context of the podcast, but I also had a conversation with a friend of mine whose investment firm specializes in heavily regulated industries. That's actually their investment criteria. They don't invest in uh, companies that are not touching some super heavily regulated industry. And it's because of the background of the general partners, which is their ability to first get a sense of how this might play out in the regulatory environment but to actually affect the regulatory environment. Like they have the networks and the reputation and the, and, and the influence to be able to actually affect the change and affect the outcome of what might happen. And so there's definitely some very interesting um, investors out there who understand this world uh, obviously much better than me. Um, so if it was an investment uh, that was in a very heavily regulated industry. Um, typically in the past, like we have shied away from it uh, because that, you know, regulatory risk is something that can be, uh, that really is uh, in, in a lot of cases, a binary outcome, right? Like you can either be spot on or regardless of the network effects and the growth and like everything, and you can be just spot wrong because there is a regulatory reason for you um, for you to for that company to no longer uh, exist, and so it's a very 
uh, risky proposition from that perspective because a lot of the factors that go into that decision are outside of the control of the entrepreneur, right? And so if the entrepreneur's not really in control of that, uh, those outside forces, obviously it makes the investors quite uncomfortable. But if I had to make an investment like that, um, we, we obviously, you know, first of all, we operate in a very uh, regulatory intensive industry, which is, you know, investments. Uh, we, we have tons of compliance and tons of legal and you know, training and stuff like that that we need to go through. So it, it does come naturally to us. Um, and we also um, have worked in industries that might not be as dependent on regulations, but are quite uh, close to regulations um, and uh, quite dependent on regulations like healthcare, financial services, you know, the way that, you know, blockchains interact with financial services, um, make them make blockchain investments a very heavily regulated uh, industry. Um, how blockchains interact with healthcare also in a similar way, um, make the outcomes of those business dependent on regulations. Uh, but if I went into a business that truly was something that sold into government or sold into um, uh, this industry, this defense industry as a whole, I would have to lean on um, other firms and other uh, investors who do this every day in a, a day in and day out and like really understand the intricacies of those, uh, what happens in those rooms and how those decisions are made. Um, but on my own, I don't have the depth, um, especially when it comes to uh, defense technology to feel comfortable making those investments. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I find it interesting the more we kind of spend time on this. There's a, they call it the valley of death issue, where companies that have the opportunity to demo, get a small um, cyber investment, which is the small, uh, small business innovation program, something like this, SBIR, um, mm -hmm. where you're actually able to kind of get in with uh, a program office. Um, from the period in which you're maybe on contract for these small, uh, small check sizes to the time you're a system of record uh, can mm -hmm. be so many years. And that's the value of death, which most companies uh, mm -hmm. die. So the typical path over the last 20, 25 years has been dual use commercial technology first, where you show some value um, within the commercial sector that pays the bills. Um, there's high churn typically within the commercial sector mm -hmm. relative to the government side. So then once you've kind of found your, your piggy bank in the commercial sector, you can go to the government side, sell to the public sector in order to A, get longer term contracts, and then B, uh, and many times get actually uh, higher contract values. Uh, but again, that's a very long arduous process and you've got to be willing to, uh, to stick around for that. The, uh, the last two companies that actually did it backwards. So Palantir started public sector and then went commercial. And then mm -hmm. vice versa, uh, scale AI was commercial first and then entered the, uh, you know, the defense sector uh, later. So uh, two different approaches. They both work in some ways. Um, they have those advantages and disadvantages though. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the, uh, yeah, let's put it in context of geopolitics, right? Like how does uh, spending on defense technology um, play into the world of politics 
um, and, and wars uh, uh, and conflicts all around the world. So um, help us understand like how, how you think about this, how important you think this arms race is uh, on the global scale. Yeah, I think, I think one thing to note though is even when we say that a lot of companies aren't immediately tagged as what we'll call primes on majority of these contract vehicles, which are all public by the way, um, okay. unless they're in like certain security, security clearance programs, um, you can okay. publicly see who was the prime on the majority of these contracts. Uh, majority of people that enter the public sector uh, government contracting space will become a subcontractor on a number of these vehicles. Um, so Microsoft is a great example of, hey, you're gonna be buying some large piece of work and then they're gonna sub out some of the services, uh, services on that work to a number of uh, startups or smaller individuals, small businesses in many cases. Um, what we're looking at here though is uh, an interesting uh, approach. I, I, I don't know how to fully interpret this one, but this is NATO uh, who launched their uh, 1 billion euro VC uh, fund. Um, very surprised to see this. For for context, um, when you're a, a NATO allied country, um, you have to operate on what's called their platform. Um, so the uh, bullets you use, the tanks, the a lot of the actual like physical systems, physical as well as software systems, have to operate uh, in a way that they'll interoperate across um, country lines for anyone in the allied um, you know, pack. What that means is um, them as a organization have to procure um, in that same fashion at many times. So that way, when you're saying, hey, we wanna buy an Android system, uh, it's gonna work in Ukraine. And the operators of that Android system could be from the UK, for example. Uh, that's, a, that's like one specific example of why you'd actually need to fund this from the, the NATO lens relative to a particular country. How do you interpret the U.S. and Canada not participating? And and it's it basically meaning that they cannot fund companies in either of those countries. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't be fully uh, fully sped up with um, that. Mm -hmm. Realistically, I I haven't seen a ton of like defense investment outside the U.S. that I think is real. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that we have enough spending here. We're we're covering most of the bases, and the platforms that get developed are coming out of the U.S. Um, defense system relative to NATO deciding, hey, we're going to kick off a new platform. Let's get everyone on it. Um, mm -hmm. We'll see that. We'll yeah. See. So, so what do you think about um, autonomous weapon systems? Like, are these some is you can talk about it from a technology perspective, talk about it from a philosophical perspective. Um, you know, what does it mean to have an autonomous weapon system that can decide what to attack, how to attack it, what's collateral, what, what amount of collateral damage is acceptable, what, what type is unacceptable? Like, how do you think about it from a technology perspective and then a, maybe a philosophical perspective? Yeah, yeah. So we'll, the the I think the reference point here is a command and control systems. Um, today, most of them we call non kinetic in nature. So they're surveying, they're drones that collect data, um, provide defense mechanisms. They're moving to become more kinetic based with human in the loop control. So it'll have 
typically someone I think in Las Vegas is where a lot of them are stationed. Um, someone's physically like controlling them on a joystick and there's a, a pad somewhere around the world where they're actually um, operating these. Andrew and a few others are um, pulling a pretty interesting uh, play around what they'll call their lattice system, which is mm -hmm. like a, their AI fabric that's supposed to be interoperable. So in the same way that you can have AI agents that operate kind of in their, in their own world, these actually operate together. So if you think of like the swarm architectures and two AIs kind of like um, without having someone actually control them, but they're actually operating between the two of them um, to, to execute a mission. Super interesting space. I think we're, we're actually finding, uh, we've had that all along. It was called a Roomba. Um, we just didn't <laughs> put any kinetic, kinetic craziness on it besides a little spinning thing. Um, it's not too far off from that though. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and then I think manufacturing's also seen this over a number of years, uh, different uh, command and control systems that, uh, yeah. that are going to be relevant. Yeah. And like yeah. the other thing that I was thinking about when, um, I, uh, I was, so when we started thinking about these two topics together, one of the thoughts that came to mind is, uh, I don't actually know how the weapon systems work when you are ready to launch a nuclear attack on another country, but from the movies that I've seen and the research that I've done on those, you know, there's like this whole procedure where, you know, there's actual physical people who have physical keys who need to, con who need to, um, authenticate certain codes and once those codes are authenticated like they have to um, they have to launch the nukes um, but there were the two things that came to mind one thing that came to mind was how do we ensure that those communication channels uh, are protected and how do we ensure that the authentication by voice or video for the people giving those commands can actually be trusted moving forward um, yeah. because it could it's quite simple to uh, actually replicate the voice of the president, right? Like that, that's quite simple now. Um, and, and the second thing was that there was actually research done uh, which said that when, uh, when these operators were put into tests, uh, there was actually not a perfect uh, execution score. Many a times when it actually came, when they, when they thought they were about to blow up an entire city, with a, a press of a button, people didn't actually go through with it uh, at 100%, right? Which is what their entire job is to make sure that once they're given that order, there's no second guessing where it came from, how it came, what the reasoning is. Their job is to press the button. And they found that uh, humans were quite reluctant to, to press that button. So do you think, so two questions, one, how do we ensure the security of that communication and that process? And two, would it be would it be uh, something that AI can actually replace or a computer can actually replace, where you do get that hundred percent, you know, execution when the decision is made? It's never hundred percent. First of all, <laughs> yeah. um, I, 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 I like human machine teaming systems, and that in the, the military has adopted that term and they they coined it. Um, I think that's how it should be. I think there's, there's, there's really is something about the ethical and more moral, um, quandary that a person will make. And our judicial system is also built for it. I think in many ways, because we don't have a way to blame, uh, an AI in the same way that we can, uh, you know, move up the food chain of a, uh, military, uh, 
unit, uh, it's going to be hard to, to adopt, it, adopt it otherwise. Uh, the doctrine actually is very impressive from the, the defense sector for anyone who's been in it. Um, it is nothing like a startup or anyone who's worked at like a, a job and even in finance and you're like, oh man, we have all this paperwork and compliance and you know, there's all these procedures. It's nothing in, in pills to, uh, to that space. <laughs> so I think that that's actually really important. And there's a lot of interesting work around LLMs because they're really good at reading and then taking this doctrine and then well, what can you do with it? Uh, I think that'll be an interesting space in the future. Uh, Scale AI, I think, is one of those companies that is uh, deploying uh, technology. They have a platform called Donovan. They've rebranded their LLM platform for that use case. Uh, the, the last comment I'll make is actually a fun little anecdote, because I think the nuclear um, comments are very timely because of Oppenheimer and the, the movie coming out. <laughs> but the one that I would say is probably way more realistic in actually equally as scary is right now we have missiles that launch uh, every few weeks from the US. Uh, it's called a SpaceX rocket uh, and that's autonomous, right? And, and, and we call them rockets, but at the end of the day, all rocket technology came out of missile technology, I think in the eighties, um, obviously out of the space age, uh, they, they just repurposed this. And a uh, majority of that is, is what we see on most of the rockets today. Um, and, and when, when I was down, uh, I worked at SpaceX for, for uh, about six months mm. down in Florida, we launched and landed uh, five rockets. Uh, we launched five, about three of them landed, two of them fell over. Uh, so the, the, the team that I was a part of was uh, instrumentation and range ops. So what that means is the connectivity between the ground system, which was an umbilical cord when it's plugged in. If you've ever seen like okay. a launch, that, that cord that kind of flies off. Mm -hmm. um, we were in charge of basically connecting up to the rocket. And then as it's taking off, um, there's a, there's a different, uh, band, uh, wireless band that we operate on, which is a effectively like military grade wireless band in which we're communicating to and from the rocket, um, as it, uh, takes off, um, basically passing back telemetry information, but it is, um, broadly speaking autonomous. Um, mm -hmm. but to, to my point, taking the rocket and shooting it off has never been a problem. What the difficulty mm -hmm. is bring it back down to earth. If you mess that up, you effectively shot a near missile back down to the United States from a private company that operates very quickly. Um, so so that, that, that's a wild concept that we were even able to do that, um, which is why you had to launch it into the water, not back onto land until much later in their, uh, their, uh, their tenure as a company. Um, which was, so uh, to, to wrap this topic up, you know, as a founder, uh, do you think that venture capital should be involved in the defense sector? Um, do you think venture capitalists can make a a justifiable return by being involved in this sector? Or do you think we have to leave this to public funding? And um, do you think it messes up the incentives, messes up sort of the balance if the purpose of the defense sector is to maximize uh, profits. I, I think it actually adds a nice diversification diversification of the VC portfolio. If you think of, it's the opposite of the earlier topic where in, a, in an ICO, like the initial coin offering in like a blockchain company where you have almost immediate liquidity from, from like that asset, mm -hmm. us, the next layer up is like a traditional startup, which you can like almost force the founder to kind of get out early the next kind of like 
uh, graduation of that is working in the defense sector, it's very hard for you to you know, force force a finger on that type of contract vehicle. You're basically signing up for a longer term um, commitment. And I think you're, you're diversifying the, the, the payback period um, in the type of companies that would be able to, to survive um, in that setup. And also obviously under recessionary periods, would they do better or worse? Um, I think that's like a very interesting topic to, to explore. I don't know the numbers on it, um, but, but I, I would um, probably because I'm biased in, in this space, mm-hmm. but I think uh, I think it's interesting enough to, to, to let most companies that are looking to expand markets, instead of expanding to global markets, maybe expand public sector and private sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you would say from your time at, you know, Palantir and Scale AI, overall them being you know, starting on the commercial sector and then going into the government sector, like overall, that was the right decision for them to make? That's such a hard question. The counterfactual world, I'm not even going to pretend like I'll, <laughs> I'd be able to make the case because they both did it the opposite. Palantir was CIA agency mm-hmm. first, and then they went then- commercial sector. It took them 20 years to do that, 15 roughly, and then it's brought 21, 22 years now. Scaly, I did it in seven. Does that make them better or worse? Was it because of market conditions? They wrote a pretty massive uh, data labeling wave for autonomous vehicles um, that dried up, and now they're you know focused on the, the defense sector is really their quote unquote bread and butter. But um, we'll, we'll we'll see, and uh, history will tell. Yeah, interesting. Very good. Well, I think we can wrap it up. We're right about an hour uh, on these topics. Yeah. Uh, great discussion. Tons for me to learn from it. And uh, we'll be doing, uh, we'll be bringing you even more interesting stuff. Uh, we're also planning on bringing on some very interesting guests uh, to add to, to the discussion on particular topics. And then also we're adding um, more timely topics in terms of uh, interesting news that has come up and uh, making sure that you know the hosts and the guests are providing their opinions, their thoughts, their insights on things that are uh, top of mind for people today. So thank you guys so much for joining us and then we'll see you in two weeks.